The following presentation is not suitable for young children. Listener discretion is advised. On July 23, 2016, Ali Bakhtiari felt a surge of elation as he and his fellow protesters all chanted the same thing. Death to discrimination. Death to discrimination. Death to discrimination. Ali had come here with five of his friends, all Hazaras like him. By all accounts, today's protest had gone well. It began at 7 a.m., when thousands of their fellow Hazaras gathered to march to Afghanistan's presidential palace. As they marched, they found many of the streets blocked off by trucks and cargo containers, meant to control the protesters' route. When they arrived at Daemasong Square, about two miles from the palace, riot police blocked their path. They could go no further. So this is where they made their protest. Over the next several hours, the Hazaras made their voices heard. Death to discrimination. Death to discrimination. Death to discrimination. The Hazaras are one of Afghanistan's minorities, making up about 9% of the population. They originally hailed from Mongolia, and many have Asiatic features. They're also Shiite Muslims, in a country that's majority Sunni. Since 1919, the Hazaras have been the victims of persecution and genocide, especially during the Taliban years. Things got better in 2001 when the U.S.-led coalition invaded the country in retaliation for the September 11th terrorist attacks. The Taliban-ruled Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan became a democracy, the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. But life still wasn't ideal. The Hazaras still faced discrimination, and violence against them often went unpunished. The reason for today's protest was about a specific grievance. Afghanistan was one of the countries building the Two-Tap Energy Project, which was intended to connect Afghanistan's energy infrastructure to its Central Asian neighbors, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Pakistan. Two-Tap would bring more electricity to Afghanistan's remote mountain regions. However, earlier that year, the Afghani government decided to reroute Two-Tap away from the Bamiyan province, where most Hazaras live. To the Hazara, this decision would deprive their people of a vital resource. So here they were, demanding their president do something about it. By 2.30 p.m., the protest was over. Thousands of Hazara began to disperse as peacefully as they'd come. Only, not everyone in this crowd was a Hazara. Ali Bakhtiari and his five friends were walking past an ice cream truck, where an ice cream vendor was selling frozen treats to the sweltering crowd members. But then they heard a bang, and then another. Twin explosions tore over the crowd. Ali watched them engulf the ice cream truck, then the ice cream vendor, and then his friends. Miraculously, he was unhurt, but all of his friends were killed instantly. Dazed, Ali and the others tried to help the wounded. Some called for help, but those trucks and cargo containers Kabul police set up along the protest route now made it much more difficult for ambulances to arrive. 80 died and 230 were wounded. It was the worst attack on the Hazara in years. Later that day, ISIS took credit, specifically ISIS's Afghanistan affiliate. The ISIS news agency, Amak, confirmed that the militant group had sent two suicide bombers to attack the Shiite gathering. It was yet another blow to Afghanistan's Hazara community, but they didn't back down. 
The Hazaras continued protesting under a civil disobedience movement called the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment found an unexpected ally. Weeks after the attack, the Twitter account for Afghanistan's chief executive, Dr. Abdullah Abdullah, essentially the country's prime minister, tweeted a strange message. I prefer dangerous freedom over peaceful slavery. Hashtag Enlightenment. Hashtag Enlightenment movement. It was an open endorsement of the Enlightenment, something Dr. Abdullah would never do, and certainly never tweet. It was clear that he'd been hacked. As the chief executive's publicity and security people tried to figure out the culprit, they soon had a suspect. It's not like they were in hiding. Shortly after the attack, another Twitter account belonging to a group called Ghost Squad Hackers took responsibility. Afghanistan government hacked by Ghost Squad Hackers. Hashtag Chief Executive Officer. Can you hear me now? The chief executive's office had no leads into who those individuals were, but it was far from their first attack, and it wouldn't be their last. Formerly part of the hacktivist collective Anonymous, the Ghost Squad Hackers was now one of the most active hacktivist groups in the world, and it was showing no signs of slowing down. On this episode, hacktivism, the Islamic State, big banks, police shootings, the Syrian civil war, terrorist attacks, and the global fight against injustice. I'm Keith Cornella, and you're listening to Modem Mischief. You're listening to Modem Mischief. In this series, we explore the darkest reaches of the internet. We'll take you into the minds of the world's most notorious hackers and the lives affected by them. We'll also show you places you won't find on Google and what goes on down there. This is the story of the Ghost Squad Hackers. Hey, everybody. So as we gear up to end 2023 and look out to 2024, I'd like to ask that if you love the show, to support us on Patreon. For just five bucks a month, you'll receive an ad-free version of the show, plus bonus episodes exclusive to subscribers. We've got 16 of them now. So head over to patreon.com slash modemmischief. Oh, you can also support us through a paid subscription on Apple Podcasts if that's your jam. Supporting us over there goes right back into the production of the show, and we've got to pay the staff, keep the lights on, and the computers hardwired. So special shout out to those who are already supporting us on Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash modemmischief to show us your support today. And now, on with the show. On November 5th, 1605, British authorities caught a group of Catholic sympathizers, including a man named Guy Fawkes, who were plotting against the British government. It became known as the Gunpowder Plot. Fox and seven others were drawn and quartered, which doesn't mean that they had their portraits sketched and were put up in a nice hotel. 408 years later, on November 5th, 2013, a Tuesday, a few hundred people gathered in London's Trafalgar Square. They wore Guy Fox masks, typically showing the pale, goatee Jacobite with his signature sphinx-like smirk. They were just as opposed to government tyranny as Fox was. They were members and supporters of the hacktivist collective Anonymous. They marched to Buckingham Palace and then to Parliament where they set off fireworks. A not-so-subtle reference to the gunpowder plotter's plan to blow up Parliament. There were scuffles with police, but no arrests. The same was mostly true in 477 other cities around the world. 
Anonymous called the mass protests the Million Mask March, although it's unlikely that a million people actually participated. The Million Mask March wasn't Anonymous's first public protest, but it was its biggest. It was meant to help the organization step out of the internet and into the real world. It also meant there would be a show of strength and unity. But if you looked closely, Anonymous was anything but unified. Ask protesters in London why they were marching, and they'd tell you it was to protest government surveillance or a lack of job opportunities. Ask them in, say, Johannesburg, South Africa, and they might name censorship. Ask them in Washington, D.C., and they might point to corruption. These differing points of view reflected the divisions within Anonymous itself. That's been the story of Anonymous since its beginning. Nobody can quite agree on what it is or who it should fight. We first covered the origins of Anonymous in episode 28, so you should definitely listen to that first. But here's the thumbnail sketch. Anonymous emerged in the early 2000s from a community of hackers and pranksters and shitposters who made up the online forum 4chan. In the early days, Anonymous pulled mostly internet pranks against targets they deemed to be assholes, like the Church of Scientology or white supremacists. But some Anonymous members felt the group should be more dedicated to fighting injustice than trolling jerks. Inspired by the 2006 film V for Vendetta, they began wearing Guy Fox masks in online videos and at public protests. Then in 2011, the Arab Spring protests broke out. Millions of people in countries like Tunisia, Egypt, and Yemen rose up to the challenge the authoritarian regimes who ruled for decades. One especially politically-minded anonymous member, Hector Monsagur, aka Sabu, created an elite team of hackers to assist with the Arab Spring protests. He called the group Lulsec. And you can learn all about Lulsec in episode 39, which covers Jeremy Hammond, or our recent bonus episode on Hector Monsagur. That's right, listeners, we got you for all your cybercrime and hacking episode needs. Lulsec was the first known anonymous splinter group, but it wouldn't be the last. The Ghost Squad hackers would be another splinter group, and we'll get to them in a second. Anonymous has no formal leadership structure, and its membership is international. Thus, different anonymous members have different beliefs and goals, sometimes directly opposed to each other. Take religious discrimination. Before Anonymous, the internet was already home to a community of pro-Muslim hacktivists. Some of these hacktivists found a common cause with Anonymous and joined up, forming their own affiliated groups. According to these Muslim hacktivists, they were opposed to anti-Muslim bigotry. But according to their critics, their rhetoric often veered into anti-Western and anti-Semitic territory. One of these anonymous affiliates was called Anon Ghost. It was founded in 2012 by a hacker who went by the moniker the Mauritanian Attacker, a nod to his home country, the West African nation of Mauritania. In an interview, the Mauritanian attacker explained that he was a 25-year-old college graduate who began hacking at 13. A devout Muslim, he got his start with another early Muslim hacktivist group called Team Poison, which was founded by the British-Pakistani hacker Junaid Hussein. And yup, you guessed it, we did an episode on him too. Check out Moda Mischief episode 33. That's the last time we'll do this. We promise. Well, probably until next episode. But man, we've got a pretty sweet back catalog here if I do say so myself. Shut up! Okay, back to the show. Another Anonghost member went by the handle Unku, which means prince in Malaysian. Like the Mauritanian attacker, he held what some would consider radical Islamist views, particularly when it came to the subject of Israel and Palestine. 
The Mauritanian attacker had good reason to bring a non-ghost into Anonymous. They were roughly in alignment on the Israeli-Palestine issue. Many Anonymous members felt that the Israeli government was oppressing Palestinians in Gaza. On April 7, 2013, on Yom HaShoah, or Holocaust Remembrance Day, Anonymous launched its first Op Israel, a series of cyber attacks that defaced Israeli government websites. Anonymous would repeat Op Israel every year after, and a non-ghost would enthusiastically participate. But a non-ghost's cozy relationship with Anonymous wouldn't last. The following year, 2014, fighters for the Islamic militant organization, the Islamic State, or ISIS, carved out a swath of territory in Iraq and Syria the size of Tennessee. Some members of a non-ghost, like the Mauritanian attacker and Unku, became avid ISIS supporters. This is where they diverged with most of their fellow anonymous members. After all, ISIS is what many people would consider an authoritarian state. One book describes it as a 21st century country with a 7th century philosophy. Plus, there was ISIS's habit of posting videos of its members gleefully beheading prisoners or burning them in cages. Many members of Anonymous began launching attacks against ISIS, so Anon Ghost and Anonymous parted ways and soon found themselves on opposing sides. By 2015, the Mauritanian attacker's old friend Junaid Hussein had defected to ISIS and helped found its cyber warfare division, the Cyber Caliphate. Now he was running it. But in August 2015, an American drone strike killed Hussein. The Mauritanian attacker wanted to avenge his friend's death. He convinced several members of a non-ghost to join ISIS and help run the Cyber Caliphate. Their duties included both hacking enemies of ISIS as well as protecting ISIS's members themselves from cyber attacks. So that pitted them directly against Anonymous. But what about those members of a non-ghost who didn't support ISIS? This brings us to the subject of our episode, the Ghost Squad Hackers. Yes, we know these groups have similar names, Anonymous, Anon Ghost, and the Ghost Squad Hackers. It's confusing, and not any easier on us either, trust me. But if you think about it, these similar names illustrate just how anarchic and unruly this hacktivist community really is. The most public and active member of the Ghost Squad hackers went by the handle Siege, spelled S-1-E-G-E. They would serve as the group's administrator and spokesperson. In an early interview, Siege identified themselves as a career computer programmer. By day, Siege worked in the computer security as a penetration tester for various companies. Siege also made some coin as a bug bounty hunter for social media companies, probing their code for security flaws called zero-day exploits, and getting paid per find. Yet Siege also had a conscience, so they joined Anonymous. Then, outraged by Israel's treatment of its Palestinian citizens, Siege joined a non-ghost. But Siege was ambitious. They wanted to fight all injustice. Not just that facing Muslims. As Siege put it, I hack to end the possibility of world war. When the Ghost Squad hackers split from a non-ghost in late 2015, there was no shortage of injustice to combat, like that witnessed by Gameda, an Ethiopian 17-year-old in December 2016. Gameda hails from the town which is in the Oromia region. Oromia is home to Ethiopia's largest ethnic group, the Oromo, who make up about 35% of the country's population. Many are farmers. Even though the Oromo possess a voting majority, various smaller ethnic groups have run the government and military for decades, leaving the Oromo marginalized. 
In 2014, the government announced a plan to expand the capital of Addis Abada by 1.1 hectares, or about the size of Belgium, with much of that land coming from Oromo farmland. It was called the Master Plan, and the Oromo opposed it from the very beginning, often with deadly results. Things came to a head in November 15th of 2015 in the small town of Ginchi. There, government authorities began clearing a forest and soccer field for an investment project. Locals, including many students under the age of 18, protested the development by marching through the streets with their arms crossed in the shape of an X. It was entirely peaceful. Even so, police opened fire on the protest with live ammo, killing 75. Police only acknowledged five deaths and then accused the protesters of inciting the violence. In response, protests broke out in 400 other cities and towns in Oromia, often led by students not even old enough for university, like Gameda. Gameda and his fellow students were outraged, both by the master plan and by the Ginchi massacre. Along with about 30 classmates, Gameda convinced his entire school to join the ongoing Oromo protests. With their teacher's support, they made a plan. The protests would start the following morning at 8 a.m. But when Gameda and his classmates arrived, local police were already there. They ordered the students to disperse and return to class. When the students refused, they arrested four of them. A few hours later, they returned with federal police. As Gameda told Human Rights Watch, the federal police officers walked into the school and immediately shot three of his classmates at point-blank range. Police forced everyone into their classrooms at gunpoint, then removed the bodies. Gameda and his classmates waited there all morning until police arrested him and 20 of his fellow organizers. And that's just one story. Across Oromo, police routinely shot protesters, or they arrested and tortured them. By July 2016, it's estimated that at least 400 were killed, thousands more were injured, and tens of thousands were arrested. Western media mostly ignored the story, but the Ghost Squad hackers were paying attention. In retaliation, they made their first big strike. They hacked into several Ethiopian government websites and defaced them. A typical attack went like this. After hacking into the website for, say, the Ministry of Defense, the Ghost Squad painted a crude X over the government's flag. Then they uploaded bloody photos taken from real-world protests. Finally, they uploaded a graphic promoting their cause. It read, No master plan. Say no to land grabbing. Oromia shall be free. Hashtag Oromo protest. It was meant to humiliate as much as it was to raise awareness. To further that goal, on January 26, 2016, the Ghost Squad hackers created a Twitter account and issued their first tweet. The tweet had a link to an interview Siege gave to the hacker news website Fosbytes, taking credit for the Ethiopian website hacks. It was accompanied by a message. This is only the beginning. Indeed, it was. The Ghost Squad hackers had many targets, but it also had a score to settle with ISIS, and their old friend was now running its cyber warfare division. The Ghost Squad hackers had three primary methods to attack their targets. The first was a good old-fashioned website defacement, just like the ones we saw in Ethiopia. The second was a distributed denial-of-service, or DDoS attack. They used it in their next attack, against a target much closer to home. Two months after its inaugural tweet in March of 2016, the Ghost Squad Twitter account issued tweet number two. It began... Hashtag Ghost Squad Hackers. Hashtag Op Trump. 
Op Trump was a reference to a recent anonymous project in which the group declared an all-out war on Donald Trump's presidential campaign. The tweet continued with a message addressed to Trump himself. Coming soon, we will make you regret the words you say about Muslims and blacks. Days later, a Ghost Squad member named Band Offline launched DDoS attacks against two Trump websites, Trump.com and TrumpHotelCollection.com, flooding them with so many requests that the sites became inoperable. However, in keeping with their anonymous roots, the Ghost Squad hackers favored neither side in the American presidential race. A few months after the Trump attack, the Ghost Squad would launch a similar attack on Hillary Clinton's campaign website in an operation they called Op Killery. This time, the group tweeted, Hillary Clinton, you deserve to be in jail. So there, Ghost Squad just took a shit on both sides. Now that is bipartisanship. Everyone happy now? The third and final attack of the Ghost Squad hackers deployed was the data dump. In other words, they would breach a target's computer system, steal as much data as they could, and then publish it. For example, about a month after the Trump DDoS attack in March of 2016, the Ghost Squad participated in that year's Op Israel cyber attacks, the annual assault Anonymous carries out against the Israeli government. Ghost Squad's participation in Op Israel 2016 amounted to publishing the personal information of thousands of Israeli Defense Force members. With these three techniques, the Ghost Squad hackers would carry out several more successful operations in their first few months of existence. Just four months after becoming operational, the Ghost Squad took on a favorite hacktivist punching bag, the good old Ku Klux Klan. And specifically, its janky-ass website that looked like it hadn't been updated since the 90s. In April of 2016, the Ghost Squad easily shut down the KKK's website with a DDoS attack. But... Dunking on the KKK was child's play for a group of veteran hackers like the Ghost Squad. A few months later, on July 5, 2016, the Ghost Squad was horrified to learn about the death of Alton Sterling, along with much of the rest of the world. Sterling was a 37-year-old African-American father of five. In July of 2016, he resided at Living Waters Outreach Ministries, a transitional living center in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where he loved to cook for its fellow residents. He previously served five years in prison for resisting arrest and fighting a police officer. But in 2016, he was living an honest life, selling CDs outside convenience stores. He was an engaging salesman who could talk to anyone. On July 5th, two Baton Rouge police officers, both white, responded to an anonymous tip that a man in a red shirt was selling CDs outside a convenience store and waved a gun at someone. When they arrived, they found Alton who matched the description. The police officers were immediately aggressive. They told Alton to put his hands on a nearby car. When he asked what he'd done, police officer pulled his weapon and shouted, don't fucking move or I'll shoot your fucking ass, bitch. Alton complied, but when he asked what he did wrong a second time, the officers used a stun gun on him, then tackled him to the ground. When searching Alton, the officers discovered a gun in his back pocket. He's got a gun, one shouted. Shortly after, one of the officers shot Alton multiple times from point-blank range. He was pronounced dead at the scene. The community was outraged. The Black Lives Matter movement promoted Alton's case, and his killing immediately began a trending topic, especially after the Justice Department declined to press charges against the officers. Justice was needed, and the Ghost Squad hackers were determined to do something about it. Three months after Alton's death, 
the Ghost Squad found a vulnerability in the Baton Rouge Police Department's website. They replaced the home page with an all-black background. They showed a picture of Smiling Alton accompanied by the following message. Being black is not a crime. This is for the shooting of Alton Brown. Just because he's black doesn't mean he's a bad guy. You will pay. We are the justice. We are the Ghost Squad hackers. R.I.P. Alton Sterling. The website defacement brought even more publicity to Alton Sterling's cause. But it's worth noting that the Ghost Squad hackers' dealings with American racism was far from consistent. Around the same time as the Baton Rouge Police Department hacks, the Ghost Squad took an unexpected target. Black Lives Matter. The Black Lives Matter movement was formed in response to George Zimmerman's acquittal for the shooting of Trayvon Martin in 2013. Since then, the group protested police violence and institutional racism. One of BLM's targets was Stone Mountain, Georgia, where you can see 400-foot-high statues depicting three heroes of the Confederacy, President Jefferson Davis and Generals Robert E. Lee and Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson. So think of it like racist Mount Rushmore. In April 2016, Black Lives Matter protesters blocked the entrance to the Confederate memorial carving, but according to Ghost Squad, this protest veered into anti-white racism. Some Black Lives Matter members at Stone Mountain called for a genocide against the white race, they said. And so, the Ghost Squad launched a DDoS attack against BlackLivesMatter.com. In an interview with Ars Technica, Siege explained they carried out the attacks because Black Lives Matter was, quote, fighting racism with racism and going about things in the wrong way. While the Ghost Squad was attacking injustice on its own, it also found time to participate in anonymous white operations. In May of 2016, Anonymous announced Op Icarus, a 30-day cyber attack against the world's banks. In their video announcing the operation, Anonymous said, Like Icarus, the powers that be have flown too close to the sun. Their time has come to set the wings of their empire ablaze and watch the system their power relies on come to a grinding halt and come crashing down around them. Ghost Squad agreed. Ghost Squad pointed to high interest rates, foreclosures, and bank bailouts as the reasons for its assault on the banks. In their participation with Op Icarus, Ghost Squad shut down websites for banks including Bank of Greece, Central Bank of Cyprus, Central Bank of New Zealand, Bank of Korea, Central Bank of Kuwait, Central Bank of Myanmar, Bank of Cameroon, Main Bank of Nepal, Bank of Kathmandu, Gulf African Bank, and Bank of Scotland. Their target list had over 160 institutions. The following month, in June 2016, Anonymous announced another project called Op Silence, this time targeting the mainstream media. The Ghost Squad eagerly participated. On June 2, 2016, Ghost Squad announced that it had successfully hacked the email servers for both Fox News and CNN. It didn't steal any sensitive information, it just inconvenienced two mainstream American news organizations for a few hours. But for a hacktivist group, that's a win. For the rest of 2016, the Ghost Squad hackers' attacks continued. In July, they hacked the Twitter account for Afghanistan's chief executive officer, which we covered at the top of this episode. They followed that up by defacing 12 Afghanistan government websites with the following message. Hacked by Ghost Squad. Your site security has been compromised by hashtag Ghost Squad hackers. All your data belongs to us now. Security? It's just an illusion. In October, the Ghost Squad turned its attention to yet another injustice, the Syrian Civil War, which began in 2011, 
when Syrian Arab Spring protesters rebelled against the government of Bashar al-Assad. Since 2012, the Syrian city of Aleppo has been held by the Free Syrian Army and several other opposition groups. In response, the Syrian government, backed by Russia, put the city under siege, cutting off its 250,000 people from food, medicine, and fuel. Then in August, the Syrian government hit Aleppo with a chlorine gas attack, which violates international laws against the use of chemical weapons. The chlorine killed four and injured 60, including 40 children. The ghost squad retaliated by hitting dozens of Syrian government websites with DDoS attacks, shutting them down. In the ensuing tweet, they wrote, Hashtag Ghost Squad Hackers is tired of war crimes Bashar al-Assad is getting away with. We declare all-out war on the Syrian government. Hashtag OpSyria. All of these cyber attacks, hitting Trump and Clinton's websites, docking members of the Israeli Defense Force, shutting down the KKK and Black Lives Matter, assaulting hundreds of banks, attacking the mainstream media, and attacking the Afghani and Syrian governments, happened within the first few months of Ghost Squad's existence. But throughout all of the high-profile activities, the Ghost Squad never forgot where it started or who its enemies were. Like the Cyber Caliphate, ISIS's Cyber Warfare Division. As we said following the death of Junaid Hussein, leadership of the Cyber Caliphate fell to the Mauritanian attacker, who was also the Ghost Squad's former leader when it was called a non-ghost. Since splitting from Anonymous and joining ISIS, the Mauritanian and his cohort carried out several successful cyber attacks on behalf of the Islamic militant group, using many of the same techniques they had during the Anangos days. For example, they doxed over 1,400 U.S. military personnel. They hacked top-secret British government emails and published them. They hacked a Swedish radio station and broadcast an ISIS recruitment song. They even hacked the website for a small British energy company called Solar UK, located near Junaid Hussein's hometown of Birmingham, defacing its website with the message, Fear us, we are the Islamic Cyber Army. The Ghost Squad hadn't forgotten about their old boss, and now they were going to give him a taste of his own medicine. On July 2016, they tweeted the following message, We declare all-out war on the Islamic State hackers and anyone who supports the Islamic State. Hashtag op reverse caliphate. The Ghost Squad hackers spent months studying the Mauritanian attacker and its cyber caliphate cohort. Finally, in July 2016, Siege tweeted the name and phone number of the Mauritanian attacker, and they've never disclosed how they obtained this information. They also docked several other members of Anon Ghost who now worked for the cyber caliphate, like Unku, the Malaysian. His real name was Mohammed Nazmi and his social media was full of pro-ISIS slogans. These dockings were a triumph for the Ghost Squad, and they no doubt brought embarrassment to ISIS and the Cyber Caliphate. But the Ghost Squad's work was far from finished. ISIS still had thousands of active members, and they were coming for America. The Ghost Squad hacker's Twitter account stayed mostly quiet for 2017. This was likely because they were carrying out their biggest and most ambitious operation yet, one that required secrecy. Internally, the Ghost Squad called this project Op Decrypt ISIS. Its goal was to publicly identify as many ISIS members and sympathizers as possible, mainly by hacking their social media accounts and private chat channels. As Siege would explain in an interview, Op Decrypt ISIS was a turning point for the group. We really don't care about attacking U.S. elections, he said. They've already been hacked. We mostly hack ISIS. 
The Ghost Squad spent most of 2017 doing just that, and by December it made a disturbing discovery. They hacked into an ISIS chat room on the Telegram app and discovered members sharing images that appeared to promote an upcoming terrorist attack on Christmas Day in New York City. One image showed Santa Claus delivering a box of explosives to Times Square with the message, We meet at Christmas in New York, soon. Another showed a car driving through the streets of New York City, tinted red with the words, Christmas blood. For the Ghost Squad, it was clear something had to be done. On December 8, 2017, they tweeted screenshots of those Christmas attack images along with the following message. Ghost Squad hackers has access to dozens of Islamic State telegrams and have intercepted their communications. They plan on executing a terror attack on Christmas. Message us for details. It's unknown if any law enforcement agencies or media communicated with the Ghost Squad about what they knew. But just three days later, it was clear the U.S. was indeed in danger. One person who'd seen those ISIS images was Akyad Ullah. He was a 27-year-old Bangladeshi with a thick, black, mustacheless beard. Six years earlier, he and his family immigrated to the U.S., where they lived in a basement apartment in Brooklyn. For income, he drove a New York City yellow taxi and then worked as an electrician. He was a regular sight at his neighborhood mosque. But Akyad had spent a lot of time online. He was attuned to the injustices and outrages committed against his fellow Muslims in Gaza, in Syria, in his homeland of Bangladesh, and even right here in the U.S. of A. Every news report about an Israeli military operation killing Palestinians or an American airstrike hurting Syrian civilians made his blood boil. Akyad became an ISIS supporter in 2014 and frequented chat rooms full of other ISIS sympathizers in the U.S., Two years later, he began researching how to build pipe bombs. And so, when ISIS members began sending those images about the New York City Christmas bombing, Akyad was inspired to do his part. In early December, Akyad purchased black powder, a battery, wiring, and nails and screws. He packed it all into a foot-long metal pipe he'd found at a construction site where he did electrical work. On December 11th, he got up before dawn. He scrawled a message in his passport for the authorities to find. Oh, America, die in your rage. He slipped the passport into his pocket. Then he fixed the pipe bomb to his torso with zip ties and Velcro. Finally, he put on a jacket and headed to his local subway stop. Akyad got on the F train at the 18th Street stop. His heart was pounding. He tried not to look or act suspicious but his fellow subway riders seemed unaware he existed. Good. At J Street, he switched to the A train and rode it to Manhattan to the Port Authority stop, where he got off. Akyad followed the river of commuters until they arrived at the terminal. It was the busiest part of the station. Akyad took a deep breath, reached into his jacket, and triggered the detonator. When the smoke cleared, Akyad was lying on the ground, shocked, but alive. He was taken to Bellevue Hospital and treated for burns and cuts on his hand and body, all non-life-threatening. Four commuters were also injured in the attack. Then New York Governor Andrew Cuomo would describe the bomb as an amateur, effectively low-tech device. But when Akyad told investigators that he carried out the attack on behalf of ISIS, the gravity of the situation became clear and the Ghost Squad hackers' mission to expose ISIS became even more urgent. Of course, the Ghost Squad hackers' activities involved more than just ISIS. 
Throughout 2018 and 2019, the Ghost Squad found time to continue attacking other targets they deemed a problem. During this time, their targets included the governments of Brazil, Russia, India, Peru, Cuba, Canada, Poland, and the website for the University of Ghent in Belgium. Siege and his fellow Ghost Squad members explained their rationale for hacking these targets, preferring to let their hacks speak for themselves. Finally, on February 12, 2019, the Ghost Squad was ready to go public with what it knew about ISIS. It published a trove of documents detailing the personal information of dozens of ISIS members from 14 different countries, including their full names, phone numbers, social media profiles, government identification cards, geolocation data, and even recorded videos from their smartphone cameras. The document dump was a mosaic comprised of stories of ISIS members from all walks of life. Above all, it gave an unprecedented look at the real people who made up the extremist group. Among those exposed were a Belgian teenager named Siraj El Musawi. We don't know much about his early life, but he was inspired to support ISIS in 2016. He reached out to the organization online in an attempt to join up. As far as we know, ISIS never responded, but this was enough to warrant Belgian police's attention. When Siraj was arrested, authorities discovered he'd saved a video on his phone explaining how best to behead someone. Another of the exposed was Rifat Mahmud Khan. Originally from Bangladesh, he immigrated to Australia. There he found work as a taxi driver, met his wife, and started a family. They lived in the Australian city of Auburn with their children, and her children from a previous marriage. But according to information leaked by the Ghost Squad hackers, Khan was a regular attendee at his local mosque, Al-Nur, where his friends said he became radicalized. At some point in 2015, Khan reached out to ISIS via the internet and joined the group. Eventually, he became the administrator for the group's encrypted chat channels on WhatsApp and Telegram. In September of 2015, Khan flew from Australia to Turkey and then traveled into ISIS country. It was a chance to meet his colleagues face to face. When he returned, neighbors noticed he was angrier. He began requiring his wife to wear a face covering garment worn by some Muslim women. Khan made a second trip to ISIS territory a few months later. But by then, Australian authorities were on his tail. When he returned home, they greeted him at the airport and took him into custody. The Ghost Squad hackers' document dump relate all of this, including a video of Australian authorities raiding Khan's home in Auburn, leaving his wife and children away. By publishing the opt-decrypt ISIS files, the Ghost Squad hackers struck a humiliating blow against their long-term enemy, ISIS. But from this point forward, the Ghost Squad hackers would face an even bigger challenge staying relevant. By exposing hundreds of ISIS members, the Ghost Squad hackers struck a decisive blow against its longtime enemy. But without an enemy as existential as ISIS and its cyber caliphate, the Ghost Squad hackers struggled to find a reason to continue their fellowship. For the rest of 2019 and into 2020, the Ghost Squad hackers did continue to fight injustice around the world. One of their targets was the government of India. Since 1947, the Kashmir region has fought to become independent from its more powerful neighbors, India and Pakistan. In 2019, the Indian government instituted a security lockdown and communications blackout in Kashmir. In retaliation, the Ghost Squad hackers defaced dozens of Indian government websites with their logo, a smiling Guy Fox, accompanied by a message. Greets to all the Ghost Squad Hackers members. Other assorted cyber attacks filled out the rest of 2020. 
The Ghost Squad hackers deface websites for the Idaho state government, various American sheriff's departments, and even the European Space Agency, which Siege admitted wasn't a political statement, but just something they did for the lulls. In the end, none of Ghost Squad hackers' operations ever approached the notoriety they achieved with Op Reverse Caliphate or Op Reverse ISIS. The group stopped tweeting in 2020, and so did its members. In other words, the members of the Ghost Squad hackers disappeared into the ether, in keeping with their ghostly namesake. Yes, it's an anti-climax. We don't know the real identities of any Ghost Squad hackers, even though they pissed off dozens of governments and corporations. And that's how they probably prefer it. Over and over in this series, we've repeated the same truth. Good hackers are famous, but great hackers are anonymous. Unlike their patron saint, Guy Fox, the Ghost Squad hackers never got caught. But the world has seen no shortage of injustice since they went quiet. This leaves just one last question. Where is Ghost Squad now? I'm Keith Corneluk, and you're listening to Modem Mischief. Thanks for listening to Modem Mischief. Don't forget to hit the subscribe or follow button in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. This show is an independent production, and it's wholly supported by you, our listeners. And the best way to support the show is to share it. And another way to support us is on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash modemmischief or click the link in the show notes. You can also support us through a paid subscription on Apple Podcasts. For as little as five bucks a month, you'll receive an ad-free version of the show, plus bonus episodes exclusive to subscribers. Modem Mischief is brought to you by Mad Dragon Productions and is created, produced, and hosted by me, Keith Corneluk. This episode is written and researched by Jim Rowley. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Greg Bernhard, aka Ghosted is the story of his dating life. The theme song You Are Digital is composed by Computer Bandit. Sources for this episode are available on our website at modemmischief.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media at modemmischief and slide into our DMs. Thanks for listening.